Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology. My name is Tiasha Zaitz, and I recently published a documentary called Overdose, How Can We Prevent Medication Errors? Today, you're going to see a version of that documentary adapted for radio. Before I leave you to it, I'd like to give you a little bit of my background and why I decided to work on this documentary. First of all, I've been living with a chronic condition for close to 20 years and have my share of errors and experiences related to medications behind my belt. I'm a journalist by background and for several years I explored how doctors see healthcare and what's their perspective on the issues plaguing the systems. I currently also work for a healthcare IT company called Better, which is a strong proponent for open data standards in healthcare. Among other products, Better offers a medication management software for hospitals. I work in this particular team as a community manager, where my role is to run the Meds Club community. This is a community of clinicians using our systems, and we meet once per month not to talk about the Better Meds product, but to share best practices in technology implementation and challenges related to medications. So far, we looked at industry trends, we looked at things like how digital therapeutics are impacting clinical practice and medication prescribing in the future, and similar topics. The documentary has two sponsors, Health Day and Better, which I wanted to mention for transparency's sake. So there was no direct transaction between me and the company, but I was able to use my working hours to work on the documentary as well. As an introduction to the topic of medication-related patient safety, you're going to hear from a surgeon, Abdulelah Al-Hausawi, who's been practicing in the US, Canada, and now Saudi Arabia. He's also the ex-founding director general of the Saudi Patient Safety Center. After Abdulelah, you're going to hear an experience of Roy Sternin, serial entrepreneur and founder of the patient-led Israeli Society for Dysautonomia. Seven, eight years ago, so one of the hospitals had a patient, a uh, young patient, uh, I think uh, 40 years of age, who had uh, laparoscopic cholecystectomy, basically had his whole gallbladder removed uh, with the laparoscope. And everything went perfectly well from a, from a surgical perspective, and he was in the recovery room. And next to him was an intubated, uh, ventilated patient, on, on a muscle relaxant, uh, he was on uh, brecuronium. And the nurse was going in to, on her way to give that patient the brecuronium. She got distracted. So rather than giving the patient who's intubated, ventilated the brecuronium, she ended up giving the perfectly healthy 40 years of age patient uh, who had his gallbladder removed, a day surgery, brecuronium. The, 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 you know, the bad part of the story is that patients ended up actually dying. And uh, you could just imagine how horrible, uh, his death was because, you know, you could, when, when, when you can't even call for help because you're paralyzed, uh, 
I don't know if you saw the movie Awake. You know, it was like about a decade ago or so. So uh, some some patients, and this is a phenomenon that is uh, uh, known where some patients under general anesthesia, they uh, <clears throat> sometimes their anesthetic without the anesthesiologist knowing becomes a bit light. So they wake up. And, and, uh, but they're paralyzed because, you know, they're, 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 they're also under general anesthesia. So they can't even move. And, and some patients actually have PTSD, post-traumatic stress uh, disorders, because you're awake, but you can't move. In the first night I got to a hospital when I collapsed from my illness, they didn't know what's going on with me because I couldn't breathe and I had chest pain. He started a heart attack protocol, um, a myocardial infarction, infarction protocol, even though I was 22, um, started to administer it, the, the medications. And um, what happened is that I came to the ER with an extremely low blood pressure. I had something like 80 systolic, which is like I was barely keeping uh, awake because I was fainting all the time. And he already put the syringe inside my arm with a medication that is a nitrate. Um, and what nitrate does um, it relieves the pressure of the heart and it and also um, expands blood vessels because in situations like this, sometimes the, there is a lot of stress on the heart and the blood pressure is really high. But if you give, you are not allowed to give it under a certain threshold of blood pressure. And I would probably stroke, like I would get a stroke and maybe die if I would get this vaccination. And what I did, I just pushed his hand away. And if I wasn't a paramedic. I was probably not here to tell this story. He was my friend. We were working together. All the team, all the nurses, everybody knew me. But still, the tiredness back then, it was, if I'm not mistaken, 32 hours of, of residence shift. Today's 26. And he didn't sleep for at least 20 hours. And like, and like He was awake straight at least 20 hours in the emergency room. By the way, um, if, it's, if it wasn't a team that knew me, I would probably be pressed charges against because I, I attacked the doctor. Um, but what, what you should do in a situation like this, you see the ampulla and you see the drug being sucked. You see your life passing through your eyes. Like you prepare it and you see, I'm about to die. Like, and I cannot do anything because I cannot breathe. I cannot control the situation. And this is everything that's wrong in healthcare was happening in this moment. Paternalism. Patients are not seeing, patients falling between the cracks, patients have no voice, no control over their body and decisions taking over their body. And this was all the nurses and the doctors in this little area knew me for years. So I guess just how many times a day it happens that a random person, maybe a homeless person, maybe somebody that the medical bias is very strong against, gets to a situation like this, these people have no voice. And we know it's the third cause of death in the U.S., um, kind of these adversities and, 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 and errors. That's what troubles me, yeah. medication practices and medication errors are a leading cause of injury and avoidable harm in healthcare systems across the world. Globally, 
WHO estimates that the cost associated with medication errors is 42 billion American dollars annually. In England, medication-related errors cause 1,700 deaths every year. The estimates for the US are around 100,000 deaths annually based on different kinds of research. Estimates are ungrateful to make since a lot of them are based on 10 or 20 years old research. In the last two decades, technologies have been proven to bring improvements in reducing medication errors when implemented and adopted well. At the same time, the opioid crisis in the US significantly impacted the number of deaths related to medications. Not all medication errors have long-term negative effects. For example, out of more than 237 million medication errors that are made every year in England, three out of four are minor, according to BMJ Quality and Safety. In many instances, an error is a near-miss, caught right before the patients receive medications. But let's look at the factors that contribute to medication errors. According to the drug bank statistics, there are currently over 4,000 approved drugs on the market. Many chronic patients suffer from several conditions. For example, a patient with diabetes might also have hypertension and chronic heart failure and has to take over 20 different medications per day. The next three statements are from, in order of appearance, John Horn, the author of The Top 100 Drug Interactions, A Guide to Patient Management, Ronnie Shiloh, CEO of Signal with an MD degree specialized in psychiatrics, and David Cliff, author and publisher of the Diabetic Investor Newsletter and a person living with diabetes. As you go up in the number of drugs, usually about five or six is sort of the cutoff, where once you exceed five or six medications, almost for sure something will, has the potential to cause a problem. Some pair of drugs in that group can have an interaction or some adverse event that, that may be additive that's just not what you want. About 10% of all hospitalizations in developed countries are due directly to drug interactions and drug-related problems. People, 10% of the people are not hospitalized because of their illness. They're hospitalized because something is wrong with their medications. There's no question the, uh, the drugs we have today are much better. You know, insulin analogs are better than the old, you know, old human insulins. Um, GLP-1 therapy is, you know, has become widely accepted. Uh, even the drugs we have, the SGLT2s, you know, uh, you know, the drugs are better. Uh, the technology is better. You know, we have CGM now instead of BGM. Uh, the, and plus we have phones. Everybody's got a smartphone. So everything talks to everything now. So yet, even with all these great advancements we've had, technology, drugs, you know, you name it, we still have a problem because a lot of patients don't follow what they're supposed to do. 
So even though you it, it we have a lot of great stuff, the same statistic keeps coming up over and over again in that like 70% of the patients, and it doesn't matter whether they're insulin users or not, are not under what they define as good control. So there's a disconnect between all of this great stuff that we have and the actual results. The one item that cannot be controlled in this chain of events is the patient. And there are so many factors that, you know, that have to be taken into account that aren't, quote-unquote, directly diabetes-related. So let's say you have a patient with either no insurance or high deductible insurance. Well, there's a lot of patients in that situation. So what do they do? They skip doses. Well, you know, that doesn't work. You know, they're skipping doses because they can't afford it. Uh, even, even, even in places where everything is given to them, you know, sometimes they, they don't do it because they forget. You know, they don't like the side effects. You know, there's, it, it just, what, what most patients want is not to have diabetes in the first place. Okay. Since they can't have that, the next thing they want is diabetes management made stupid. Okay. Something they just do every day without even having to think about it. So the problem has come that, you know, I think a lot of the platforms that I've seen, especially in the digital space, they have the opposite effect. They're there to help, but it's a constant reminder to the patient. Oh my God, I've got a chronic condition. Oh my God, I got to do this. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Patient medication adherence and effects of medications on the patient in his everyday world is a broad topic on its own. Another universe entirely is also what happens when the patient enters a hospital environment. There, several stages can contribute to medication challenges and patient harm. In the next few minutes, you're first going to hear a statement from Duncan Cripps, lead pharmacist for electronic prescribing at the University Hospitals Plymouth NHS Trust from the UK. Then, a practicing nurse and the CEO and co-founder of AdvoSense, Martina Viduka, is going to share a nursing perspective. And then you will hear an example of the complexity of the clinical setting as explained by Lea Diaz, clinical pharmacist, founder and CEO of Quefacta. Um, primary care that have been using digital for decades um, and hospital um, to a greater or lesser extent is still relatively new to the game. Um, the fact that there's still, um, even with the, some of the more advanced um, systems, the ability to share data across uh, environments is incredibly limited um, and it's a massive barrier to care. One of the big wins about um, introducing a digital solution is to try to minimise the need for transcription, um, so from, from one paper document to another. But until we've got um, really good integration systems created uh, between separate digital systems, that um, transcription process is still required. So we're still relying on a human being having to translate 
one data set into another data set and yet the information is exactly the same um, between the two systems it's just that there's no means of communicating directly. So a lot of the times you have patients coming in from the community and we don't have access to their medications. Or they'll come in with a pill box completely unlabeled. They don't know what they're taking the medications for or what they are. And trying to get that information from the patient sometimes is difficult when they don't have that health literacy piece. And then also in terms of the providers, because you have patients going to different providers prescribe different things and it's not traceable. And we saw this was a big was, you know, it was a big thing when it came to prescribing opiates. You had patients going around to different emergency departments asking for pain medication and you were unable to track, you know, that they were just at the hospital next door and received the prescription. So having this this um, you know, this information follow the patient throughout the community and into the inpatient setting, I think is would be a huge improvement. When I was a clinical pharmacist looking at medications on the uh, on the ward, um, I came across quite a, a significant uh, error or or uh, an error that wasn't detected by the the nurses or the doctor. And I was a clinical pharmacist covering that ward for the day, and I think it was after a weekend as well where we didn't have clinical staff. Um, looking at that every day and you know you have a reduced clinical staff on as well particularly pharmacists in that scenario and I came across a drug chart that had vancomycin on it and the patient and vancomycin is a drug that is uh, an IV an intravenous drug used for um, severe infections and we normally monitor this drug on a daily basis <clears throat> along with uh, drugs like warfarin, digoxin these type of drugs are what we call um, the, the therapeutic monitoring of these drugs where they can become quickly quite toxic. So in this scenario, I saw the very high elevated level of vancomycin in this patient. And this IV, this particularly IV antibody can create um, kidney complications if it exists in a very high dose in the body. So basically, the idea was that that dose should have been withheld that day and now the patient had an extremely high level of this drug in their body and was starting to get kidney complications as a result of it. So for the, me, this was quite a concern and um, it was documented as an error as well that occurred in the hospital because all the safeguards that were meant to be put in place weren't there. So checking the therapeutic levels, having a purple pen indicate check the level before dosing. So this is how we used to alert doctors and nurses to check levels by putting a purple pen on the page to, to indicate it. So you can see that's very, like it's a very, in a, in a digital age where we have phones and so on, to be able to indicate that this is a really important drug with a purple pen, you know, is as a highlighter is, is really sort of quite archaic. And so, you know, this, this led to us thinking, okay, this cannot be the, our long-term solution on how we tell nurses and doctors to really care for the patient and to critically look after this because what that results in by not caring for that patient properly is an ICU admission. So in a patient ending up in intensive care unit or in a high um, dependency unit, for example, and all the worst case scenario of fatality like death. Like in this case, this didn't happen and we were able to quickly, um, you know, turn things around in this situation. But it's not always the case. And this is the, the I think, the scariest thing as a clinician is is making these errors because everything is with good intention when you're caring for patients. 
Hospital environment is complex and patients understand that. Here, David Cliff explains why management of chronic patients can be difficult on the example of patients living with diabetes. In a hospital setting is probably, again, depending on what the patient's in there for, is probably the most difficult setting to be in. And so I think, you know, everybody wants to, obviously, you you want to do no harm. You don't want to have a severe hypoglycemic event, nor do you want a severe hyperglycemic event. You want to do your best to keep them in a, in a good range. Um, but it is, it is a, a very demanding area because of the, what I would say, the non-traditional factors. It's not like, you know, somebody just having, you know, managing their diabetes on a regular basis. You're in a hospital. You know, you're, you're getting poked and prodded every couple hours. You know, you're not sleeping probably like you normally do. You're not eating like you normally do. You're not exercising. You're under stress. I mean... All of these are complicating factors that even if let even if um, somebody follows, let's say, the protocol to the letter, doesn't mean there's not going to be an issue. Challenging as an admission in the hospital already is, the doctor needs to create a list of all the patient's existing medications and decide what will happen to those medications during the hospitalization. If a hospital uses an electronic system for medication prescribing and management, the list can be much clearer in terms of what was prescribed. If paper is used, it can be more challenging. As we can see in this example, it might be unclear what medication is prescribed or what was the exact dosage. Illegibility is a huge issue also because many medications look or sound alike when written. Sufentanil and fentanyl are both opioids, but sufentanil is 5 to 10 times as potent as fentanyl. So for example, if a senior doctor is dictating prescriptions for a patient to a junior doctor, an error can happen when the junior doctor is either writing medications on the paper or in the electronic system. Here is another scary example, as explained and described by Abdulillah Al-Hausavi. So a friend of mine's a mother was was a patient of mine, and uh, she had uh, she had she had uh, an abdominal problem and required to have a piece of her uh, large bowel, a piece of her colon removed, and you know I I, I did that surgery. And she was in her 70s, I believe, 70s, maybe late 70s, early 80s. And uh, she was in polypharmacy. And one of the medications that she was on was uh, eltharoxine. So it's uh, basically a hormone for, for patients who that have low thyroid uh, for people that are just uh, not, not familiar with it. And basically, her dose was uh, 25 uh, mics, you know, micrograms of, of, of eltharoxin. And at that time, the hospital that I worked in, the, the, the medications were actually, uh, brought in manually. So 
one of the junior doctors rewrote, you know, sometimes when, when you have so many medications, it becomes a mess. So you have to kind of rewrite it. So he rewrote the medications and uh, he just added one zero. So rather than it's 25, it became 250. And a patient that old, when you're multiplying the medication by a factor of 10, uh, could have gone into basically uh, heart failure with, with that dose. Uh, who recognized the error? The son, my friend. While especially in the developing countries, healthcare is getting increasingly digitalized, there still isn't a 100% penetration of the digital systems across the world. Paper is in many cases still a reality. When the medications are given to the patient, mistakes can happen due to packaging. In this example, the left medication is an antihypertensive and the right one a neuromuscular blocking agent. This dosage in the vial is 10 mg per milliliter, but the vial contains 2 milliliters, making it easy for a nurse to give a patient a double dose. The sixth time overdose with the COVID vaccine happened because one vial of the Pfizer vaccine contains six doses and each dose needs to be diluted in a new vial. The nurse thought the vial she took was already diluted. Next, a comment by David W. Bates, Medical Director of Clinical and Quality Analysis Information Systems, Patient Safety Expert and Harvard MD. There have been some catastrophic injuries uh, uh, that have been, and deaths that, that have been caused by situations like that. So a classic example is when um, adult strength heparin is put in the in the uh, neonatal uh, intensive care unit, so where where there are a lot of babies, and if you give a baby a dose of adult strength heparin, they predictably will die. Um, there was one uh, hospital in Ohio in which which that happened, and three babies died before they figured out what was going on. Uh, finally, when the third baby died, they they realized that that there there was a there was concentrated heparin that was being given to these. Um, to these uh, children, and the, the you know an issue there is that the vials look very similar. So just looking at the vial, you you wouldn't necessarily notice anything. Over 20 years ago, the report to Aries Human shook the medical sector, since the report showed that almost 100,000 people a year die in the United States due to medical errors. These, apart from medication errors include issues such as the wrong diagnosis, hospital-acquired infections which can't be treated due to the increasing antimicrobial resistance, and other aspects. But progress is being made on several levels, so let's look at the improvements. One of the changes increasingly present in the hospital setting is the inclusion of clinical pharmacists in the workflows. This is how John Horn, the research professor of pharmacy at University of Washington, explains the value of clinical pharmacists. Well, you know, the usual physician probably knows 10 or 20 drugs really well because that's what they use all the time. Um, but a, a cardiologist doesn't know much about oncology drugs. A neurologist doesn't know much about cardiology drugs. So the problem, you know, for many patients is not that they have a single disease. They have multiple diseases and they start seeing multiple physicians for that. And so who is, who's the arbitrator of all of these potential 
alerts and interactions that can occur from multiple physicians. And I will guarantee you the physician does not want, does not want to do that. There, there's I've never met a physician who was willing to change a different physician's prescribing. They just don't do that. And I understand that. That makes sense. But that's where pharmacists can play a role because we're we have no you know we don't have a dog in that fight. Um, we're just trying to take care of the patient. That's all. And and we'll be happy to talk to both physicians to see if we can figure out a, a different way to do it. Many things have improved in the last twenty years. Among the factors are technologies supporting prescribers and nurses. In an ideal setting, medications are managed through a so-called closed-loop system. The doctor prescribes the drug electronically, the clinical pharmacist checks the prescription, the prescription or the drugs are then automatically dispensed by a robot in the pharmacy, barcoded for a specific patient in a unit dose format, and the nurse administers the drug by scanning the drug, the patient, and then administering the medication. However, technologies are not perfect either. Prescribers may have decision support systems for prescribing medications and checking interactions that have limited usability. All of the legacy clinical decision support systems, particularly from the standpoint of drug management, which is my expertise, so I'm going to talk about that, are binary, either alert or you don't alert. That's it. And so, you know, if you're faced with the decision, do I put the alert in the system or not? Well, if I leave it out, what if somebody gets hurt? That's bad. So they put the alert in, even though it only happens one in a hundred, one in a thousand, one in 10,000 times. And that's what's produced all these false, inappropriate, positive alerts that occur and produces this alert fatigue that is so common. Dr. David W. Bates is an internationally renowned expert in patient safety, using information technology to improve care, quality of care, cost effectiveness, and outcomes assessment in medical practice. He has published over 700 peer-reviewed papers on these topics. Some of the work that we did showed that that when you uh, just computerize uh, ordering of medications, you can reduce the frequency of medication errors by around 80%. So, so pretty big decrease. Um, with barcoding, you can reduce the chance of giving somebody the wrong medication to, to near zero. Barcoding really, really works well. Uh, but if you look at it uh, from the other angle, uh, what does it feel like to be a physician? Uh, physicians are now getting, uh, uh, at our hospital, one warning for every two medications that they write, and people write medications all the time, and they're overriding 98% of those warnings. So it's very clear that to us that we need to uh, decrease the frequency of those warnings because we've also found that e- even when there's a really important warning, people are very likely to to ignore it or, or override it. A- again, just because they're getting so many, so many warnings and it's hard to sort out what's really important from what's not. As mentioned by Ronnie Shiloh, the CEO of Signal, it's time for the support systems for clinicians to become more user-friendly. Clinicians don't have time anywhere in the world. Not only those that are in the emergency room, those that treat you on an ambulatory care, those that treat you in internal medicine departments, etc. They have five, seven minutes 
to to see you each day if you're in hospital or if you're an ambulatory patient they, they see you every few months if at all and, and for five to ten minutes and during those five ten minutes they need to do a lot of things one of them is to address drug interactions and if you are not able through technology to support a very fast and accurate and patient-specific alerting or solution, you will lose the clinician. Technology can be ineffective because of the poor user experience. A solution might not be accepted among the staff. If users are not properly trained, it will not work. For example, a study from 2015 showed that adverse drug events decreased by 52% where technology was accepted, but increased by 14% at hospitals reporting physician resistance to the use of IT. Any progress is gradual. If the last 20 years of healthcare IT development were the first phase of supporting clinical work with IT, the second phase will be to make solutions more user-friendly and consequently used. For example, in the home setting, there's over 5,000 medication app reminders, the most successful one being MediSafe, which is used by over 7 million users in almost 200 countries. The U.S. consumers can already sign up for PillPack, which enables them to get medications packed in a single package based on the time they need to be taken. A startup called YourMeds in the U.K. works with local pharmacists where pharmacists pack medications for the patient in special portable smart medication boxes that prompt patients to take medications at the appropriate time. For injectable medications... Health Beacon offers a digital health device and platform helping patients take their medications as prescribed and dispose of them safely. There's a whole new field of digital therapeutics, software solutions with a direct impact on treatment and outcomes. Some digital therapeutics works alongside medications or impact medication prescribing altogether. For example, A digital therapeutic for chronic pain can help individuals mitigate their pain through guided exercises, which might reduce the need for medications. On the clinical side, various prescribing decision support systems are developed for clinicians. Some of these have very narrow focus, such as Glytech, which is an insulin management software company for healthcare providers to deliver personalized insulin treatment recommendations. Dosis is focused on offering recommendations regarding the treatment of anemia. Signal is an Israeli-based startup which designed a clinical decision support platform that is connected to the electronic health record, so it takes into account patient-specific information such as lab results, lifestyle habits, and more before giving the doctor a recommendation regarding the medication prescribing. Another startup comes from the UK, It's called Dosium and it spun out of the Helix Center of the Imperial College London. Dosium is developing indication-based prescribing, meaning that doctors get suggestions for prescribing based on an individual's disease. Obgen is addressing one of the biggest challenges in medicine, the antimicrobial resistance. 
Antimicrobial resistant infections currently claim at least 50,000 lives each year across Europe and the US alone. Companies such as Obgen offer rapid testing to detect antibiotic susceptibility or resistance in a specific case. This consequently doesn't tell the doctor which antibiotic to prescribe, but it does indicate what antibiotic or classes of antibiotics not to use as resistance markers are detected that suggests that those antibiotics would be ineffective. On the pharmaceutical development side, new hopes about polypills are emerging with the evolution of 3D printing. If you could combine various medications into one pill, it could potentially be much easier for the patients to take those medications. Dr. Horn, however, is skeptical about that, since polypills are not a new idea. I was around back when they used to do polypills, and they got a really bad rap um, from the prescribers. They don't like them. Um, the choice of combinations weren't always really uh, the best they could be. Uh, and, and, you know, physicians didn't like it because it limited their ability to select um, doses and, um, and really to personalize therapy. So those went out of favor for a long time. And I think that there's still a lot of people around who remember that and are, have some sort of mindset against that idea. Uh, I, I think we can do a lot better job now than we did back then in, in picking correct or more appropriate combinations. But you still got the problem of dose differences. Uh, there's a huge range of responses to drugs uh, based on all sorts of things. And uh, that makes it difficult to say, here's a pill that will be good for everybody. You can make a combination of pills that's really good for a person, but how do you pack that into one pill? That's the difficulty that I see. And maybe there'll be a way to do that someday, but I, that's going to be hard to do. I mean, you have to have a huge number of different dosage forms. So, uh, you know, from a manufacturing side, that's tough. With the advancements of science and AI, Many hope the future lies in genomics-based prescribing. For example, in oncology, pharmacogenomics can help predict cancer susceptibility, tumor progression and recurrence, patient survival, and response and toxicity to chemotherapy. In essence, doctors are already deciding on genetic testings what they will prescribe in specific cancer cases. Outside of oncology, an often-mentioned enzyme that is now thought to be involved in the metabolism of up to 25% of drugs that are common in use in the clinic is CYP2D6. With the help of this enzyme, it's possible to determine if a person is a slow or rapid metabolizer of a specific drug. This is important because if a person is a rapid metabolizer, there is a danger that a dose will cause toxicity. The impact of this was again discovered the hard way. Infant deaths from opioid toxicity have been attributed to breastfeeding mothers who were CYP2D6 ultra-rapid metabolizers taking codeine for postpartum pain. After these case reports, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration amended codeine labeling and prescribing recommendations. Genetic factors can account for 20 to 40 percent of inter-individual differences in drug metabolism and response. 
A lot of research still needs to be done to make pharmacogenomics findings useful since many factors can impact dosing adjustments and solutions cheaper than pharmacogenomics can be used in certain examples. An example like that is warfarin. And, and warfarin is metabolized by a number of different enzymes in the body, um, a couple of which are under, well, are all under genetic control. But, but the primary pathway for warfarin metabolism, um, there are some patients who have a lot of that <clears throat> particular enzyme and other patients who don't have much of that enzyme. And so the idea was, well, if we could figure out who's a fast or a slow metabolizer, we could figure out what the best drug dose of warfarin would be. And the it's just not worked very well. And the reason why it doesn't work very well is because we have a really easy way to measure a patient's response to warfarin. It's called an INR. It's a simple lab test. It's a finger prick. You don't even need to do a venipuncture to get it. So by the time you, you know, do the genetics and figure out what your dose is, most patients, you'll already know what the answer is because you'll be following their INRs. So it's an area where, you know, it certainly is interesting from a research standpoint, but I think it's very applicable or practical. Now, the reason why it doesn't work very well with warfarin is that the genetics probably accounts for less than 30% of the variability of a patient's response. There's a, a huge number of things that affect warfarin response. The new hope for personalized medicine and better predictions about how the patient will respond to a specific medication or combination of medications lies in the rising amount of data, quantum computing, and advancements in AI. The world of research is very optimistic. The next speaker is Marinka Zitnik, Assistant Professor of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard Medical School. The number of combinations of drugs grows incredibly quickly with the number of drugs that are in a combination. So it's, it, it is really um, uh, not uncommon to encounter patients that can take 10, 20 drugs, uh, prescription drugs at the same time to counter these very uh, hard and multifactorial diseases. And the problem with that is that it's impossible to, to test all these possible combinations that patients might be taking on through clinical trials and in labs. So that essentially means that uh, we are seeing these effects for the first time now in real-world patient populations. And so what uh, the algorithms that we've been developing can help us do here is they, they can help us identify and flag potentially unwanted and side effects of these combinations of drugs and unsafe events that they might lead to um, before these combinations are even prescribed to real patients. And so for that, we have been primarily uh, working with uh, data from FDA, uh, our partners at uh, FDA, so this, which is the U.S. regulatory agency for drugs, have shared with us over 10 million reports of adverse events for the entire U.S. population for over the last 10 years. And we use that information to actually identify what uh, what is the risk of an individual patient uh, developing a particular side effect, taking into account their um, personalized information in the form of personal profile, their age and gender demographic data, as well as other diseases and that the patient might have and drugs that the patient might be taking on. 
There is no shortage of ideas about what AI could achieve. The challenge at the moment, however, is the fact that research is done on retrospective data, it's done in controlled environments, and healthcare is often chaotic because of the nature of situations such as emergency admissions. Nonetheless, the amount of data is increasing and is already leading to the creation of so-called digital twins, computer simulations about responses to medications. This could have an important impact on drug discovery. So this notion of digital twins then is incredibly appealing. And, and, and think of it as almost like having a simulation system or, or in silico setting that one could probe um, and, and ask all these difficult questions regarding toxicity and safety of a, of a drug before any um, clinical trials are, are done or even experiments in, in animals. So, and, and so that's, that is very exciting and, and digital twins are being developed primarily for certain focused disease areas for which more data are being available. So there exist digital twins for aspects of oncology, uh, for Parkinson's, Alzheimer's disease in some limited capacity based on limited understanding of biology. Um, because it's, it's really incredibly challenging to tease apart and identify really what happens when a drug is administered to human body, right? And so, and so these experiments first take place in a very crude way where drug is being added to some number of human cells in a petri dish. It's sort of cells in a petri dish are very different from a human being, right? And so, so the question then becomes what kind of basic mechanisms of drugs uh, action can be revealed through those um, experiments that now this can be done in high throughput manner through screening processes, for example, or experiments in cell lines. And then how to put all these experiments together to essentially integrate data from the level of uh, individual genes and mutations and variants in a, in a, on a genome to then proteins that are encoded by those genes, how those proteins interact with each other, what kind of molecular functions they give rise to, and how then alterations of those functions lead to the onset of disease. So ideally, and what I hope will happen in the next um, uh, in in, few, in the in near future is that we will have these differentiable counterparts of these large complex biological systems that in many ways will be uh, optimized for knowledge discovery designed and, and kind of interpreted by AI algorithms in order to allow uh, drug developers and drug designers ask questions um, and pose queries. And, and kind of get get predictions and insights that can inform um, um, uh, uh, all aspects of drug development. And, and the digital twins are particularly exciting from this standpoint. I hope that we'll have many more of them for a variety of disease areas and that uh, they will get better over time when more biological knowledge is being integrated from the a gene level to healthcare and lifestyle level of, 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 an, of a human body in order to really understand the complexity of the drug. 
Medication-related patient harm is a multi-layered challenge that concerns everyone in healthcare. Patients, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, leaders. While we may not be aware of it or feel it's not primarily our responsibility, we all play a role in the chain of events related to medication safety. Here are some final thoughts about improvements from Abdulelah Al-Hausavi, David Bates, Duncan Cripps, Lea Diaz, and in the end, again, Abdulelah Al-Hausavi. Been, I've been in, in different healthcare systems, and uh, uh, it is very much clear to me that Uh, the, the, the challenges of patient safety and medication safety has nothing to do with geography alone. Because uh, in, a, in a country like the U.S. and Canada, uh, the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer is uh, medical errors. In a country like the U.K., 150 preventable death happens every week. Uh, the, these are advanced and top healthcare systems. And, you know, I talked about the 134 million adverse events that takes place uh, in low-middle-income countries, which is causing 2.6 million uh, deaths in, in low-middle-income countries. So, so in a way, this is not a high-income country's problem, nor low-middle-income country's problem. This is a healthcare system problem. It's a global problem. And the way to uh, deal with it is to deal with the with the causes of why we we are where we are, which I mentioned at, at the beginning. You know, things around the safety uh, culture, thing, things around the human factors and ergonomics, empowering patients and families, and uh, you know, using uh, common uh, taxonomy uh, and 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 the advocacy piece. You know, we really have to keep pushing the envelope and, and making sure that this issue becomes mainstream. These numbers are just, uh, you know, uh, people are, 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 are become aware of those. And, and if people uh, in many countries realize that healthcare is uh, not as safe as we think it is, and if people realize that there are potential harms, uh, then they're going to push those healthcare systems towards finding a solution. And if there's a will, there's a way. Leaders to learn about patient safety and learn about patient sa safety culture and what it takes to um, maintain a good safety culture. There's some terrific examples of how organizations responded to even very serious uh, accidents in ways that were, were positive. Uh, one of those is, was one... Uh, Um, sadly, that I was uh, involved with because it happened in an institution here. Um, uh, Betsy Lehman was the healthcare reporter for the Boston Globe, uh, and she was admitted to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And uh, because of a miscalculation, she got five times too much chemotherapy and eventually died of, of uh, uh, as a result of that. And the institution uh, took that took that accident and um, learned a great deal from it and really uh, changed many of their processes. And I, I, I applaud the, the leadership at the, at the Dana-Farber for all that they did uh, around that. Um, 
that's an example of an organization that, that really transformed it, its culture and the level of safety at the institution um, at, you know, after there was a serious accident. Uh, we don't want every institution around the world to have to have a serious accident before they they go through this and work on it. So, so I think it's one of the most important things for healthcare leaders uh, to learn about is uh, is this area of you know both safety and quality, uh, what it takes to improve it, and how they can ha- they can have an influence on making things better. We we do talk a lot about no blame culture. Um, I think still think that people have some 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 hang-ups about that as an idea, um, but certainly looking at it from um, uh, an, an electronic prescribing lead, um, it's it's much more useful to be able to have instances um, flagged up uh, as incident reports where no harm happened to the patient. That's very powerful, um, and we're not looking to try to, to then apportion blame to individuals. Um, it, it is about trying to, to improve systems. Um, but also within the NHS, there is a, um, a push to try to, um, to talk about um, safety too. So this is rather than focusing always on errors, uh, to also fo- focus on what's good um, and learning from um, when things go well. Uh, and making sure that those kinds of practices are reinforced rather than always looking at just the negatives because most of the time things do go right Um, and so it's important to to learn the lessons of that rather than just focusing on when things go wrong. So the best clinical practices uh, that I I saw while I was travelling with the Churchill Fellowship where I visited about five to six hospitals um, that range from the US through to the UK, Israel, Singapore, to, to look at the, the practices that were um, implemented in these and then to see how we could then bring those practices into Australia. So some of the things that I saw were uh, uh, some had a very clear vision and strategy how they were going to implement the systems and the type of systems they wanted to bring in and the problems that they were tackling and also the type of data that they wanted to record and capture through this. So that was a very interesting um, exploration into it and what that showed as well as how they were able to reduce the medication errors in the hospital by implementing these best practices as well. So the best practices weren't only based on the digital technologies and and automation, um, including robotics, medication dispensing robotics that they brought in, but the best practices related to the vision the funding as well was a really important part and the implementation of these systems. But I think the most enlightening thing for me was to understand the um, the integrity of information on medication management is related to the biggest clinical system. So if you have an electronic medical record that in, in integrates all the different parts of hospital medicine and community medicine as well, you have a more robust system and, and less errors and, and greater enhanced efficiencies as well. Healthcare is developing at a speed, you know, just light speed. And, and the new, you know, medications that are coming up, uh, there's actually, uh, they looked into the, the, the medical data uh, and the time it would take for medical data to double. So, in in 1970, I think they they uh, it was estimated that it would take I don't know 20 years, 30 years for the medical data to double. In 2018, that number 
came down to 73 days. So every 73 days, the medical data doubled. And, and I think what closes the circle here is the patient. So, and, and the patient and the family. And, I, and I'll tell you why, because let's say that we're prescribing, you know, a, a paracetamol for a patient and you've got the best electronic health records and you've got the best, uh, the computerized physician order entry and everything goes well. But then at the time, at the point between the, uh, the, the dispensing, you know, the transcription and the dispensing of the medication, you could still have an overworked, uh, understaffed unit where an individual nurse just makes the, the mistake. Now, who would be helping us to make sure that we really transform the safety is the patient and family. Because if the patient and family knows that, you know, we're not, we're not trying to make patients and families uh, clinicians. That's not, that's not the, uh, the you know, what, what I'm saying here. But we want to make sure that patients and families are really integral part of the team. So an overworked nurse who's basically uh, just distracted does not end up harming uh, the patient uh, or, or, you know, the family member because we have someone who's, who's, who's that part of the team. So I think that's what I'm trying to say. I think the technology is great. I think with time and getting also IoT, the Internet of Things and AI, you know, many things would, would, would help us. But that ergonomics, that uh, human factors, uh, you know, uh, engineering piece, I think, I think this, it, it would very much benefit from empowering patients and families. You've been listening to the audio version of the documentary Overdose, How Can We Prevent Medication Errors? Find the speakers in order of appearance in the show notes, as well as the links to the documentary published on YouTube and the link to the panel discussion, which happened at the premiere. The panel discussion will also be published as a podcast episode. Stay tuned.